Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Well, hello and welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. My name is Jeff Bernier and monthly I am your guide and host as we uh, have these conversations around money and meaning. And um, so what we try to do on these shows is get together and uh, provide some encouragement around helping you create clarity and confidence in what matters and then help you put the financial plans in place to give you the capacity, the freedom to go pursue your vision of a meaningful life. So as you know, about half of these shows, we we sort of focus on the meaning uh, and the purpose uh, uh, side of the conversation. Uh, and then on the other half of the shows, we dig, uh, dig deep into wealth management topics. And that's what we're doing today. Today is another wealth management focused show. Uh, so we'll focus again today on investment planning. Uh, you know, I really enjoy reading and learning uh, the academic literature around the science of investing. I love speaking, speak, uh, speaking to smart people who are the true experts in this field. But, you know, there is a danger, though, um, when I bring on a guest on the show uh, who is an expert uh, in uh, the academic uh, foundations of what we do in investment management. And that danger is, um, you know, I can sort of geek out on this and get, get, it, get a bit in the weeds. Uh, but today, I'm, uh, we're fortunate. I have a guest who is perfectly qualified to get in the weeds. Uh, but fortunately, he's also a great communicator and will help us uh, put some thinking around some of these complex topics. And so I am really, really excited to introduce to you today uh, my friend at Dimensional Fund Advisors, Wes Creel. Hello, Wes. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. Excited to be here. I heard the word geek, and I know I'm in the right place. I so appreciate you having me on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me, me, me too. Well, let me introduce Wes properly here. He is the head of the investment strategies uh, or, or of an investment strategist and a vice president at Dimensional. As a member of the Investment Solutions Group, he directs empirical research on a broad range of investment topics uh, to help clients, both in clients as well as their advisor clients. He's a frequent speaker at uh, Dimensional and industry events. As a matter of fact, uh, I was just telling Wes, I think the last time I saw him in person was at a national conference uh, actually here in Atlanta. Uh, he's responsible for developing content, analysis, education. It's distributed across a wide variety of platforms. Um, and he's a really, really smart, well-educated guy. He's got a BS and a PhD in material science engineering from North Carolina State University. So again, Wes, really excited to have you have me here today. Have you here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. And you know what I like to do normally, I mean, this is as I mentioned in the in your prep, it's pretty informal. Uh, but I really do like for our audience to get to know our guest a little bit. So do you mind 
just telling our audience a little bit about you and your family and uh, and also sort of a career path from uh, a PhD in material science engineering to the investment management business? Yeah, I think the transition from engineering into finances is probably a good place to start the story because, sure. you know, most of my family and personal life overlaps from there. Okay. You know, I'll rewind the clock back uh, 14 years and I'm there as a PhD student doing theory and simulation in these nanostructured engineering particles that, you know, maybe five or six people in the whole world are really going to take a keen interest in. And I was thinking, you know, what what can I find out there that would, you know, fit my skill set, fit my goals for the future, but would have more meaningful impact, something where I can see a tangible outcome of my efforts um, that really makes a real world difference. And, you know, that led me into finance and in particular dimensional. I think from the start, dimensional is always been known as a company that's that's very tied into the academic community that is um, in its core based on rigorous academic research. And that just resonated with me. So I joined Dimensional back in 2010. Uh, that involved moving to Texas, uh, which is where I met my wife uh, back in 2011. And, you know, we still live here in Texas in Austin uh, with our three children and two dogs. So basically five children. Okay. Wow. You sound like you got a busy, a busy household. Now, are you, are Indeed. you, are you from North Carolina? Is that your home originally? The, the tri-state? I am. Tri-cities area? Yeah, I was born and raised in North Carolina. Yep. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And, and been in Austin since you moved to, to dimensional. Yeah, it's 13 years. I sometimes market in um, number of years in between these hot summers where we have 40 <laughs> consecutive days over 100 degrees. So if you count in units of that, I've spent three tours in Austin. <laughs> gotcha. Well, it's 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 been pretty warm in in Atlanta this summer as well, so we can we can relate. Well, let's let's start with the basics here. Um, you know uh, what some call the father of modern portfolio theory, Harry Mar Markowitz you know, passed away earlier this year. And I noticed he wrote a blog post a while back with some big takeaways from some of his work. Do you mind sharing some of your big takeaways from, from, and again, you know, we could probably do a whole show on Harry Markowitz's work, but you had a very succinct blog post about some of the key things that you took away. Do you mind sharing some of that? Yeah, I mean, Markowitz's research was really groundbreaking, and it led to a lot of innovations that we've seen in terms of asset pricing models, understanding how you know, expected returns vary between different portfolios. But I think of just some of the, you know, the bedrock principles of his theory is almost being things that we use on a daily basis um, as unconsciously as breathing, you know, just this whole notion of diversification. And, you know, in one respect, it's very simple. I sometimes describe it to, you know, my family as, well, if you have two companies, one of which produces sunblock and the other one produces umbrellas, you can get a sense for how their cash flows are going to be a good complement for each other. And you get that diversity vacation benefit where if one company's up, you know, maybe that's at the same time as another one is down. But the implications of this go even further. And it really, for me, comes down to how we evaluate investments for our portfolios. It is very common to look at metrics for return versus volatility. You know, sharp ratio is one such metric where you're saying, okay, well, here's the volatility that has historically been demonstrated by this asset. Say it's a group of stocks or bonds or whatever. Um, and here is the rate of return that they have delivered historically. And the trade-off between those two might factor into, you know, how appealing that asset is. 
Well, that is not always a comprehensive way to evaluate that in a Markowitz framework because Mm -hmm. it's not really what that asset is doing in a vacuum. It's what it's bringing to your portfolio because remember, each disparate component of a portfolio is bringing in a diversification benefit. And what you're really looking at is what is the overall impact to my portfolio's return and volatility, not so much what's happening with that particular component. It's exactly like how when you evaluate the components of a dish when you're cooking. Right. You know, I don't munch on a piece of garlic and evaluate the quality of that garlic. I evaluate what the flavor profile is of my dish after I add the garlic. So the sum is really greater than, uh, or sorry, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts in that analogy. Yeah. So, so the big, so the big um, takeaway, I guess, is you can't look at the assets in isolation, how they behave in isolation. It's their contribution to the portfolio. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly. You know, you're looking at what is the implication of the diversification benefit. And that's also another way to evaluate whether something uh, does, in fact, make you more broadly diversified. You know, you might say, is it expanding my opportunity set? Is it giving me something I don't already have in my portfolio? Mm-hmm. There's countless examples of things out there that have a different name for marketing purposes, but are really a repackaging of something you maybe already have in your portfolio and might offer an unnecessary duplication of that exposure. So I just, I think of the implications from a Markowitz world as being countless when it comes to building sound portfolios. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's insightful because I know back in the old days, you know, we just would fill up a portfolio with a lot of asset classes on the idea that having more asset classes, you had a more diversified portfolio, but it wasn't, it wasn't the asset classes themselves. It was how they correlate with the others. And a lot of them could be more complex and duplicative unnecessarily because you already had, you already had that factor or that, or that characteristic in the portfolio. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So when we help investors decide between, you know, let's, let's just make this simple between growth and safety, you know, some, you know, people think about in building a portfolio, you've got parts of the portfolio that are, that are for defense, if you will. Um, and, you know, prior to, prior to 2022, many people thought bonds were, were, were played that role. And, and obviously I'm, I'm being a little facetious here. We think they still do. Um, but how do we help investors make a determination on how they allocate capital against between, say, the growth parts like equities and higher expected return and higher volatility asset classes and the defensive like fixed income and cash? How do we help investors make that determination, do you think? What's the best? What, what, is, what is the best way to do that? Yeah, I think you framed it well where you have risky assets and you have risk management assets. And there's some conventional wisdom that people will appeal to when they think about how much to hold of each and how that varies through time as you go from, you know, a, a youth or ute, as they might say, where, where I'm from. Um, and then in the future, you know, as you start to approach retirement, uh, believe it or not, there actually is theory behind this. So it really comes down to when you have two kinds of assets that you're going to be using to fund your future liabilities, if it's retirement or some other obligation you have in the future. And those assets pretty simply are your financial assets. So your investment portfolio that you have, the stuff that you've purchased, and you also have your human capital. So your human capital really just simply means my ability to continue to work, to earn a paycheck, to save more and contribute more to my savings that are going to be used for retirement spending. 
And what you see is, as I uh, proceed through my investment journey, I start to deplete my human capital. I'm not going to work forever. So as I start to approach retirement, my ability to continue to work, save, and contribute to my portfolio, to my financial assets is dwindling. And at the same time, you know, theoretically, if I've been saving along the way, my financial assets are starting to become a larger portion of what I'll call my overall balance sheet. And so this is where you see uh, what the implications would be for my composition of my financial assets. When I'm young, and if I have a long way to go to work, then the majority of my overall assets are my human capital. I'll probably have a paltry number of financial assets, which means in that sleeve, I can take on more risk. I can take on more in terms of growth assets like stocks. Uh, human capital tends to be less risky than the stock market. So you can think of that seg- segment of my balance sheet as being relatively low risk. Of course, when I get to closer to retirement, the majority of my assets have now become financial assets. And that's where I need to start backing off in terms of my exposure to risky assets. And you know, there's all manner of, I guess, splits that you'll see across the industry when it comes to that landing point, what percentage do I have in risky assets at retirement? Um, you know, it, it might be common for some investors to have more risk management assets like bonds and then stocks at that point. Um, and that's a change, you know, from where they would have been uh, earlier on in their investment journey. So it's that's kind of where that theory comes from. Um, and it just helps people think about, okay, well, in a perfect world, you know, I would love to have just this unlimited growth. I'd love to have 100% stocks. What stocks do is just broaden out the range of outcomes. So for a given level of consumption that I want in retirement, let's say I decide I want, you know, $50,000 to spend per year, I end up having to potentially oversave, like vastly oversave if I'm only invested in stocks because I don't know what that account balance is going to be like in the future. That's where those risk management assets come in. Even when they have a down year, like in 2022, like you mentioned, when interest rates uh, rose very quickly still doing their job in terms of in the over the long haul minimizing the range of outcomes around account balance gotcha yeah and that and that's and that's and generally that's kind of the way we have viewed it traditionally as uh you know the, the fixed income is there to play defense but the human capital aspect i think is a is a great insight um what listen this will what i'm about to say now will not be a surprise to anyone who's listened to this show um you know we are very interested as a firm in using the academic literature uh, and we and we believe in the benefits of tilting our portfolios uh, to some of these known drivers of higher expected returns, um, and obviously that's a big part of of, of dimensional's process. Um, you know, I but I have I do get push uh, pushback occasionally in the marketplace. So do you mind giving your take on why you should even bother from deviating from you know let's say the market portfolio and. You know, I think I think I would define the market portfolio as as, as all investment, all, the global market in total. Um, and some people, you know, might believe that you should just allocate your money uh, consistent with the market. Um, we don't. We deviate away from that, and I and I know Dimensional does as well. So why should we even bother doing that? Do you think? So I would start with the idea that, you know, it doesn't have to be the case that every single person needs to deviate from the market. But then if there are opportunities to increase your expected return, you know, this is something we've evaluated when we look at preparing for retirement uh, spending. I mean, you know, there's 
a lot of potential benefits by increasing your expected return for your portfolio and increasing the amount of assets you have to spend or bequest or whatever when you're in the retirement phase. So many investors find it appealing to do better than market rates of return. The real question is, you know, what do you use for these deviations? Not all of them are created equally. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, as a starting point, one of the few things I get consensus on if I ask an audience this is, do you believe that there are differences and expected returns across stocks and bonds. And pretty much unanimously, people will say, yes, that's almost certainly got to be the case. So then the question is, well, how do we identify these? Now, trying to pick stocks, figure out where the market got things wrong. You know, we have a half a century of data to suggest that that is not a reliable way to pursue higher returns than the market. And, you know, that's where there's been an outcropping of factor-based research. So what are characteristics associated with higher expected returns within stocks and bonds? And you know, we have a lot of good evidence around those. Um, and so at that point, you know, you start to see, okay, well, if there is a reliable way to pursue higher returns in the market, now it's not without trade-offs. It's certainly something we can get into. Um, but because of the higher probability of outperforming the market, um, and that means higher wealth I have in retirement, higher levels for bequests and so on and so forth. You know, we feel that for many investors, it is a useful trade-off. Okay. Well, what, once you've determined or you believe that, yeah, this makes sense, we, we want to we deviate from the market portfolio, how does one determine how far to deviate? I mean, I know, mm. I know Dimensional has different wealth models that have different um, I, I guess, levers on how far you deviate from the market portfolio to these factors. What advice would you give an investor in deciding how far to go in terms of deviating from the, from the market in the pursuit of higher expected returns? Yeah, I always think back to that quote, know thyself. Okay. Uh, is being especially appropriate here. And it kind of comes down to, so I mentioned earlier, there's going to be trade-offs for these things. Okay. So by tilting towards known drivers of expected returns. And when I say that, I just mean emphasizing stocks with higher expected returns, like small cap companies, like low price to book companies, like high profitability companies. And you're increasing your expected return, but it also means that there's a non-zero chance that I can underperform a market cap weighted market benchmark um, over any horizon. You know, that probability of outperformance never goes to 100%. And so then the question is, well, how much and how long of a period of underperformance am I willing to stomach in the pursuit of higher expected returns? Because, you know, with the higher and higher expected returns from a deeper and deeper tilt or more emphasis on the stocks, the higher the probability for underperformance. And sometimes I'll just go back to, you know, what I think of as being one of the worst patches we've seen for factor performance, uh, you know, halfway through June uh, of 2020, or sorry, halfway through 2020 in June. Uh, if you look over that trailing three-year period, you know, it's probably not news to many investors. That was a really rough patch for the value premium. And, you know, we have different uh, indices we use just to measure the performance of the U.S. market with different levels of tilt. Right. And a lightly tilted index over that three-year period underperformed the market by about 10 basis points per year or 0.1% yeah. per year. Right. You might say, okay, well, that's pretty reasonable that. over the yeah. long haul. Yeah. Expected outperformance for that index would be around 50 basis points or half a percent. So you might say, okay, that's one level of trade-off I could arrive at. 
Now we have a more deeply tilted uh, core index that has a long run expected outperformance that's probably closer to about 1.5%, maybe 2%. It underperformed the market by about 2.5% per year over that same three-year stretch. Yeah, much higher, yep. So, so it, you know, it's like peppers. Like, do you like poblanos? Do you like habaneros? Do you want to be somewhere in between? You know, that's why we build lots of different investment solutions. So, you know, you, our clients, can actually make a decision about how much they want to deviate from the market with the strategies we provide. Gotcha. So I guess what I'm hearing is it's not one size fits all. Again, it's kind of back to the know thyself quote. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's probably, that's part of the reason why these factors exist in the first place, because we think that it's probably not one size fits all in terms of, um, you know, the risks that present themselves to investors, their investment opportunity sets, their tolerance for these risks and what the implications are. And I think that gives rise to these different factors out there. That's why they exist in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well let me, let me, I, I have a question I was going to ask later, but let me go ahead and bring it up now because you mentioned uh, when you deviate, obviously there's a non-trivial chance that you're going to underperform over any period of time. Um, again, the long-term data is pretty persistent, but there are intermediate periods where, where, you know, where the factor, uh, may not add value. Um, and again, I guess a lot of traditional active managers basically say the same thing, you know, in order to outperform, uh, the market, you've got to be different than the market. Um, and so I guess what you're saying is when you deviate from the market using some of these known drivers of higher expected returns, you just have to recognize there will be these periods. But um, how long a time horizon do you think a client needs in general to evaluate results of a tilted portfolio versus a either a less tilted portfolio or, or no till? Is there a time horizon that the expectations would be, um, would be, be reasonable to evaluate? Yeah, I'll answer in two ways. One is individually, when we look at just the premiums uh, individually. So like the value premium, I'll take that one as an example. So the return difference between low price to book stocks or value stocks, as we call them, compared to high price to book or growth stocks. If I look at the premium between those two over rolling 10-year periods in the U.S., that means every single month I have a new observation over the trailing 10-year period. I see whether that premium was positive or negative, and then I wind it forward to the next month and keep doing that for the almost 100 years of data we have in the U.S., and we see that 81% of those rolling 10-year periods have had a positive value premium. Okay. Um, now, for the non-math majors out there, that still implies a 19% frequency of the premium being negative. So that means that even over, over a 10-year yeah. period, so, and, and that is most investors out there would think of that as a very long period of time. When it comes to stock data, that's still pretty short. And I'll give you another data point for context to show you how short that period is. If I look at the same type of analysis, rolling 10-year periods for the equity premium, so we're talking about U.S. stocks compared to one-month treasury bills. Now, this is a premium that I think is almost inarguable uh, in terms of its expectations. Everyone believes stocks should have higher returns than bonds uh, You know, when I ask people about that. And yet, over rolling 10-year periods, that premium has only been positive 85% of the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that just goes to show how volatile stock returns are. Now, I mentioned I was going to try and answer this in a couple of different ways. That's individually for the premiums. They have, say, 15 to 20% chance of being negative over a 10-year period. If I integrate them together, 
And this is what all of the research is pointed towards. This is what Dimensional does across all of our strategies. If we have size, value, and profitability premiums and the equity premium integrated together, it's much less likely that that collection of tilts will underperform the market. You start, you don't go to 100%, but over a 10-year period, you start to get you know, pretty darn close to 100%. Uh, it sounds like that Markowitz effect might be coming into play there, right? So you've got, you've got these um, affect categories or, or characteristics that don't all move in the same direction at the same time in many circumstances. I mean, is, yeah. that, is that a fair statement? It is. Well, especially if you think about the kinds of stocks that would be driving those premiums. So let's right. take the value and profitability premium. Right. So high profitability companies don't tend to be low priced to book companies. Right. You know, if everyone sees that profitability, they're probably going to have a low discount rate or higher valuation ratio associated with them. So that means that there's different stocks that would drive higher returns in the market. So there's a diversification benefit there. Now there is a nuance there, which means that when you're building a portfolio that harnesses all of those, you got to be careful about the interaction between those. And you know, you if you don't pay attention to what's going on with your valuation characteristics, you could bring in a profitability tilt and completely undo your value tilt. So there is some nuance when it comes to portfolio design. That was my next question. So if we if we increase one, are you by definition decreasing another? So the simplest answer is yes. Uh, that's kind of the nature of things. I like to think about it is like if I make two lists of foods, one of them is foods I think are delicious and one of them is foods that are really good for me. There's yeah. not a whole lot of overlap between those. Okay. So you might strike a healthy balance between them and say, okay, well, I'm going to take some from this list and some from this list or more effectively, I can look at the lists of foods that are healthy for me and then identify the ones that are the most delicious. You know, So you're sort of leveraging two concepts at the same time. There's right analogy probably has gone totally sideways, but you can kind of see the point here where yeah. um, there's always going to be like, if I sort on one variable, say it's price to book ratio, I identify the stocks with highest expected returns and I bring in another characteristic that is not perfectly correlated with that one. Well, now when I sort on that, I'm going to attenuate some of my spread on the first variable. There's really just no two ways around it. Yeah. Yeah. So what we look to do is actually take advantage of that. So I mentioned that diversification benefit of the different stocks. And then what we find is that if my overall tilt away from the market is the same between two different strategies, but if I get there with strategy A using only one tilt, so I'm only loading up on value to outperform the market, Whereas strategy B, again, my same overall deviation from the market, but I'm doing it along those two dimensions simultaneously. The one that is using multiple variables actually has lower tracking error versus the market for a given level of expected outperformance. So I know it's kind of a mouthful, but what that means is more reliable outcomes by combining them. And right. you can take advantage of that interactive effect. Well, the way the way I think about it is, um, you know, um, I think a friend of Dimensional, Larry Swedro, states frequently that, you know, you've got a lot of these different asset classes that have similar expected returns by themselves. And by mixing again, um, you end up with a smoother outcome because you've got these obviously the diversification benefit of, you know, profitability versus value. And, and I know that's not a direct, um, a, you know, a correlation in terms of perfectly opposite, but but there is there is obviously some benefit in in combining yeah. in combining them. Um, you know, so uh, value, so ch cheaper companies relative to some fundamental, uh, 
uh, size, market market cap is is uh, is a known uh, premium that that we see in the in the data, and then profitability. Are there others that are important in equities, or are those the ones that that we should be primarily focused on? Yeah, people are probably wondering, you know, why these three? And you know, there's lots of data out there about other characteristics being associated with differences in average returns. And a lot of the research we do is to figure out, you know, answer a couple of different questions. The first is, to what extent are these other premiums or return differences in the data already explained by things that I'm considering, like size, value, and profitability? Uh, but there's also, okay, if they if they do appear to be a distinct driver of expected returns. How do I incorporate that along the other ones without losing the benefit of the first few? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some examples there. Now, you know, going back to this idea of adding things into the portfolio, there's a point of diminishing returns. Uh, there was a great paper from Robert Novi Marks, one of the many prestigious academics we work with, basically showed that you know once you have a, a couple of these variables, and the next one you know doesn't add a ton to the overall mix in terms of returns. Um, I think about momentum as being a, a pretty good case study for this because it's something we see in the data. So it suggests that stocks that have had relatively high returns over the past year tend to continue to have higher returns in the market over the short term. And it is a very short-term effect. I do want to emphasize that. So right. it tends to involve more trading to capture. But you know, there's also another side effect, which is if you bring that into a portfolio, and if you use it to inform what you buy in the portfolio, what it does is, if you're not careful, it can push up your valuation characteristics. These tend to be growthier stocks, you know, than than what you would see for for downward momentum, and it can cause your overall portfolio positioning to drift away. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's one example of a variable where we found another way to use it. We found that um, again, if I have stocks that have become value stocks, well, all it's being equal, they might have downward momentum, they might have lower expected returns in the short term than I would otherwise desire from that value segment. And so the ones that are in downward momentum, we'll use those momentum characteristics to inform when we buy it. Gotcha. Uh, and you'll find there's actually a whole host of different variables that we'll use similarly. So uh, it comes back to that sort of not an adding up constraint, but just the diminishing returns you get from additional variables. But if you find clever ways to use them in terms of timing of your trades, you can still take advantage. With, without the without the high turnover and the additional cost and tax inefficiency, yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because um, some people will use uh, momentum strategies actually as um, almost a complement to value, kind of in the same way that we were talking about using value or using profitability in that way. Problem right. is that the overlap between momentum and value is notoriously unstable. So right. again, going back to that Markowitz framework, it's like, what is this giving me that I don't already have? If it's duplicating another portfolio in my asset allocation, that's not a helpful observation. Gotcha. Uh, so, you know, we're using a lot of historical data to come up with these factors or the, or the research. Um, yet we tell, we, we tell investors that, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Um, how can we, how can we be confident that this, um, you know, that this actually fairly short data in the U.S. is, is still predictive about the future? Any, any thoughts on that? So you got to have a good story for why you expect this thing to persist again. And honestly, I could probably spend a whole hour just talking about the nature of, you know, what constitutes a good assumption about the future versus what doesn't, you know, what 
details of the experiment historically are subject to change in the future. Uh, when we talk about these premiums that we pursue, we think we have a great built-in theoretical model for them. And it, it really just comes down to basic valuation theory. Anything we buy and setting aside stocks and bonds for a minute, anything you go out and buy, whether it's a house or a car or watches, you're evaluating what you expect to receive. So if it's a car, maybe it's the make, model, the trim level, the mileage, the you know brand, whatever reputation for reliability. And then you take that as a proxy for what I'm going to get in the future. And then what makes it meaningful is how much I have to pay for that. What's the price for that car? And so by combining how much I'm paying with what I expect to receive, I've come up with a very solid, rigorous framework for evaluating expected returns. And that's what those premiums really are telling you. They're telling you that if I pay a low price, either in the form of price-to-book ratio or market cap, or I have a high expectation for cash flows from the security in the future, which for stocks, that's where profitability comes into play. The combination of those is giving me that same framework for where stocks have higher or lower expected returns. And the nice thing about that framework is it's evergreen. It doesn't go away. It's not subject to where we are in the business cycle. It's not sensitive to what recent returns have been in the market or for those premiums. That's something I continue to believe in every day. And if that goes awry, then we're going to have to rewrite a lot of economics textbooks. <laughs> well, what's, what's, what's uh, great about that, too, is um, when, when, you were, when you were describing this, I was thinking about what causes the lower prices and the and, and what causes the lower prices is obviously, you know, more sellers than buyers. So there's a human element to this. You know, it's 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 people showing up in the marketplace every day making a judgment, and it's it it appears to me in in my my very layman's uh, study of history is people don't tend to change that much. Uh, over time, over time. So I think not only the academic um, or, or the theoretical common sense on why you, a lower price relative to earnings ought to give you um, ought to give you a higher expected return. It also mm. deals with a little bit with me with with sort of human nature and, and a behavioral aspect of this. So, um, you know, I, I think I would add that to your to your to your thought as well. Um, let's talk a minute about the research that you guys did on retirement planning and retirement income um, sustainability. And you alluded to this earlier because, you know, the whole reason we do all of this is so our clients can live uh, a, a great life, so they can have confidence yeah. and freedom and go pursue what they want to pursue. And in, their, in Act 2, I mean, that's about having a rising income stream uh, to keep pace with rising prices. So I know you guys did a bunch of research on how these portfolios that tilt to these factors may improve that. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the benefits, one of the many benefits of pursuing higher expected returns by tilting towards these premiums. And you know, I mentioned earlier one of the trade-offs with uh, a, a factor portfolio is the potential to deviate from the market on the negative side, so underperform the market. But if we think about projecting for our retirement preparedness, you know, say we're doing Monte Carlo simulations, some sort of situational analysis to figure out what our savings are likely to be able to afford in the future, you know, there's two really main inputs you're putting into that type of projection, and it's the expected return assumption and the expected volatility assumption. 
So you'll notice I didn't say expected relative return. I didn't say expected tracking error. It's return and volatility. And that's where there's good news with these premiums because uh, you know those indices I was speaking about earlier that reflect tilts towards these premiums, they've had higher returns in the market historically, but they've had market-like volatility. So effectively, they have higher sharp ratios. And what that translates into is you know, higher account balances during, uh, during the retirement period. And you know, that's a obviously a clear benefit for the things we alluded to earlier. You know, you get, um, if you have 1% higher rate of return on your portfolio during your savings period and during the retirement drawdown phase, you know, you might have 15 to 20% more in terms of assets that you're drawing on during that period. And, you know, that that's a real benefit there. Another thing that you know we'll often use, uh, again, one of the big impediments to being able to afford your lifestyle in retirement is inflation. And certainly that's been in the news lately. Well, we know that stocks are not an inflation hedge. I won't go as far to say they're an inflation hedge, but they've tended to outpace inflation. So the average real return for stocks in high inflation years. So if I condition on the 50% of years in the US market where we had high inflation, uh, stocks have had a return that outpaced that inflation. And that's even more true for these tilted portfolios. Mm. So you're getting a couple of benefits there by pursuing the premiums, I think directly speak to the usefulness for people going into retirement. Right, right. Very helpful. Well, I can't I can't finish the podcast um, without talking a little bit about fixed income. We've, we've talked a lot about uh, stocks and, and the equity side of uh, the allocation. Let's talk a minute about fixed income. Um, so if you've decided that you want to deviate from the market portfolio and pursue some of these premiums, um, um, how, how do we think about portfolio construction with fixed income? What is what, what, what should investors think about in the use of fixed income in a tilted portfolio? Um, any, any thoughts on that, on how fixed income should, should play? Or, or should it just yeah. be the same as it would be in a non-tilted? So with fixed income, and we do have drivers of expected returns, there's characteristics that tell us about differences in expected bond returns, mainly, you know, looking at the yield and then also the shape of the yield curve, you know, which I'm happy to delve into. Uh, but you're also balancing other trade-offs with fixed income because it does tend to be a risk management asset. Yeah. And, you know, stocks, there's really just one mission. It's just return. But with bonds, depending on what risks you're trying to manage, you might have a completely different appropriate opportunity set when it comes to the bonds that you would hold. Um, you know, two quick examples would be, okay, let's say I'm saving for a down payment uh, for a home in a few weeks. Okay, well, then my fixed income selection is going to be something that has very minimal duration and very low, uh, what I'll call, you know, credit exposure. So very high credit quality of the bonds there. And right. that's because taking on duration in a fixed income portfolio or taking on more credit risk is usually associated with higher volatility. Well, that's antithetical to why I had those bonds in the first place. Right. You might have other investors who are trying to match liabilities in the future, maybe saving for either retirement or, um, you know, maybe, you know, college fund or something that has more duration for that liability. And then all of a sudden, maybe I decide to take on more duration in my fixed income portfolio. So you're going to have different asset allocations within fixed income just based on those, uh, you know, simple scenarios. But if I think about, again, that market what's framework, what does it do to my overall asset allocation when I have these differences in either duration or credit exposure? And it is sensitive to how many equities you have. So it's probably not news to most people that stocks have much higher volatility than bonds. 
And if you have a majority of your financial assets in stocks, so if I have a 60-40 portfolio where 60% is in stocks, most of the volatility comes from the stocks, which means that if that 40% sleeve has short-term high-quality bonds, or if I swap that out and put in maybe market duration bonds with market credit quality, the overall volatility impact is very minimal. Right. My return goes up a bit, but the impact on my portfolio volatility is minimal. And clearly, the opposite is going to be the case if I have mostly bonds in the portfolio, where it's going to be more sensitive to those decisions along the duration and credit quality spectrum. So, you know, it, it does make a difference what else I have in the portfolio, as you would expect in a Markowitz world. But there is that added nuance of what are the risks I'm ultimately trying to manage. Right. Right. Um, you know, I do hear clients recently, um, because obviously rates have eased back up a bit recently. And so I'll hear a client say from time to time, well, everybody knows that rates are going up in the future. You know, interest rates are going up. Uh, everybody knows this. <laughs> so why don't we just hold cash because cash is earning close to 5%? How, how would you answer that question? Yeah, this reminds me of when I started at Dimensional and we were coming out of the global financial crisis and everyone said rates are rock bottom. They have to, you know, they have to go up. What do they do? Up. They actually yeah. go down over the next few <laughs> right. years. Yeah. So yeah, this is uh there's actually a, a term for this expectation, you know, the belief that anything about the yield curve tells you about future changes in interest rates. It's called the expectations hypothesis. It has been summarily debunked with decades of academic evidence. What we actually find is that differences in yields, so if you look at the the yield for an intermediate bond versus a shorter term bond, that yield spread actually tells you more about the subsequent premium or return difference between those bonds than it does direction of interest rates. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we think that's probably not a great input into a fixed income asset allocation. Now, does that mean everyone needs to be at the same point on the curve? No. You know, like I mentioned earlier, there's going to be different risks, different goals that people have that are trying to use that fixed income for. And then within that opportunity set, whether it is more focused on the intermediate spectrum or whether it is on the short-term spectrum, there's things that we can do to reflect the shape of the yield curve to increase expected returns. Um, but we think that that's you know, any belief about where interest rates are going to go, not been successful Mainly because you got to answer a lot of questions, by the way. If you tell me interest rates are going, going to go up or down, then you got to be able to answer a lot of other questions like which interest rates are going to go up or down. Is the curve going to shift in a parallel fashion? Is it going to be steepening? Is it going to be you know getting even more downward slopes? Uh, that's a very difficult call to make. And we see from the active manager landscape that it is not consistently executed well. Well, and, and it's a competitive market. So if, quote, everybody knows it, you would think it would already <laughs> be in the price. If, yeah. if quote, who's taking the other side of that trade? Yeah, right, exactly. Right. If if everybody everybody knows it, but it is compelling today when people look at five percent, you know, money market fund yields. But I think the mistake we all make is, you know, a, a yield with a money market uh, security that has very short maturity, you know, rolls over every thirty days or so. That's not a very good proxy for long term expected returns. That's the current yield. Um, exactly right. Yeah. But the fact that you're getting 5% today does not necessarily mean that you'll be getting 5% a year from now. Um, yeah. I, I, um, so I think that's a danger that, that we make sometimes when we, when we fail to recognize that, um, you, you know, every asset class has a place to play in the portfolio, but don't confuse the two. Don't confuse cash with, yeah. you know, with intermediate term fixed income. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the yield curve itself and, you know, part of the reason why people find those very short term, uh, fixed income solutions desirable right now is because that yield curve has tended to be downward sloping in the past few months in the U S it wasn't always that way. I think just looking at the difference between if I go back to like the end of September in 2022 versus the end of March in 2023, and you had a drastic change in the shape of the yield curve. And so yeah, I think it's important for investors to keep in mind that these things are subject to change in the future. The expected volatility, by the way, in bond markets, you know, we have a proxy for that. It's sort of like the VIX is for stocks. We have the same thing in bonds. Um, and it's particularly elevated right now. And I think most investors probably would not want to continue to monitor that situation and make the selection of fixed income from there. And that's why it makes so much sense to have, you know, someone who's managing that money for you to make that determination on your behalf. Right. And, and, and know what role you want the bonds to play. I mean, what role yeah, is exactly. play in the portfolio? Well, the last, the last question is really about um, artificial intelligence. You know, this has been, you know, the, the year of artificial intelligence, it seems, both in, um, it seems like a lot of uh, money flowing to the theme, if you will, uh, and also, you know, we we hear we hear talks about how it's going to transform not only um, business but also the investment management business. Uh, any mm. any thoughts on both the impact of AI on the capital markets, but also as an investment manager, the use of AI to increase returns? Yeah, it's funny if you look at the the news story. So there's a proxy for this in Bloomberg, what tells you how frequently something was searched for. Right. And if you look at the AI search frequency, you would think that this was Skynet appearing. We got to protect John <laughs> Connor at all costs. Like it's a Terminator kind of scenario. Okay. I, you know, one of, one of the things that fascinates me about this whole AI subject is the extent to which people think it's, it's new and AI in its core. So the functionality of AI, which I think is to um, recognize patterns in data and then make predictions about the future in terms of what they're seeing in real time. And that stuff's been around forever. I Even uh, you probably use Microsoft Word back in the 90s where there was sure. an enterprising little uh, paperclip that would jump out named Clippy. And he would say, you know, it looks like you're trying to write a memo. Would you like some help with that? That's AI. That's recognizing a pattern and coming up with a suggestion that probably wasn't that helpful to Tom. Yeah. Um, if you look down at your phone, you know, when I don't know how long your commute is, but when I get in my car in the morning, it'll say, if it's a weekday, it'll say uh, 30 minutes to you know, my office location. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of at the core of what AI does and has done for a very long time. That also means it's pretty boring in most deployments. I guess the most recent sort of you know, appreciation for it has been what its relevance would be for finance. And that's where I think its ability to predict things in the future is much more suspect mm. because making solid predictions in the future means you need to be trained on a data set that is relatively stable. And you think about a self-driving car, it knows what a stop sign looks like because stop signs don't look different from one day to the next. Stock returns are all over the place. There is no stability in terms of the correlation matrix between them, and they're highly volatile. You know, even these things we've been talking about, like size, value, and profitability, and the cross section of individual stock returns, they only explain about three or four percent of the variation mm. of daily stock returns. Wow. So it's very uh, dubious that any of these AI tools would be able to predict things in the market. What they're most likely to do is identify a subset of information that the market already has. 
Um, so I think of the appropriate AI as being aggregate intelligence of the market and wow. not artificial intelligence uh, of these tools. Oh, that's a great term. That is a great term. You call that the aggregate information of the market? Aggregate intelligence. A aggregate intelligence of the market. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a great term. Yeah, and the way, I mean, I'm, I have not done a lot of study on it, but I, I, I sort of think back to the internet bubble, if you will, um, you, you know, there's some great breakthroughs in uh, computer technology and the internet and uh, back, you know, obviously in the late 90s. Um, but trying to figure out who the winner and loser was going to be and all of that was impossible. Um, but it did, it did influence and made businesses more productive uh, because of those technologies. But trying to pick the winners in that, in that space to me seems a little, a little, um, uh, challenging, uh, to say, yeah. to, to say the least. Um, well, this yeah. has been, well, this has been very helpful, Wes, um, as I knew it would be. Uh, and, and we, you know, we geeked out a little bit, but I think we, I think we did okay here. Uh, <laughs> uh you know, we use sharp ratio and, and things like that once in a while, but that's mm -hmm. all right. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll define those. Um, so any, any other words of wisdom or, or thoughts you'd like to leave the audience as we, as we wrap up? Yeah, I guess it just always comes back to all of the exciting stories we hear, anything that comes out from the media. Um, if you think about the advice that is being implied by some of these stories, it's not necessarily aligned with your best interest. I sometimes think about a portfolio as a bar of soap. The more you touch it, the less you're going to have. And I think that's something to keep in mind that, you know, investing should be like watching grass grow or paint dry and all of this exciting stuff, all the factors into great investment stories. It gives me lots of content to write about. Don't get me wrong. I love these stories popping up. Uh, but I think the tried and true virtues of investing, broad diversification, you know, uh, being mindful of taxes, of costs, and, you know, just dutifully rebalancing, but not making sweeping changes in your portfolio. I think those are still the ways to go when it comes to more reliable outcomes for investors. Great. Great. Well, this has been very helpful. Uh, so thanks for being my guest today. If, if listeners wanted to learn more about you, your writing, how, how can they, how can they, how can they find you? So all of our content can be viewed at dimensional site, dimensional.com. Uh, and of course you can find me on there. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Wes Krill. I think I'm probably the only one on there. Okay. Um, so feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Great. Well, thank you so much, Wes. It's been, been, been awesome having you today. And thank you all for being our guest today. I hope you found it uh, a value and enjoyed the conversation with Wes as much as I did. Uh, please leave comments or reviews on the show at iTunes or Spotify or wherever you uh, watch or listen to podcasts. You can also reach out to me at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com if you'd like to email me. Um, as I've talked for the last uh, year almost, you can also check out my book, The Money and Meaning Journey, um, at all major online retailers and at jeffbernierauthor.com. So thanks for being with us. Find what makes your heart come alive and put the pan plans in place to pursue it. Thanks and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or comments on the show, 
feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning@tandemgrowth.com, or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.